And welcome to The Real Money Show. This is the number to start investing, one eight seven seven eight silver and online, therealmoneyshow.com. A little later in the show, we'll be talking to Bob Hoy of institutionaladvisors.com. But first, we want to get into a natural fancy colored diamonds. And the guys are here, Jeremy, we have Paul, and we have our grading expert, Nicole Snitman, in studio as well. Guys, let's get started. Paul, you are so passionate about natural fancy colored diamonds. I know how much you love them. You're a, you're a connoisseur, you're a collector, an enthusiast. Tell us why you think people love investing in colored diamonds so much. That is a great, great question, John. Um, it's a million-dollar question, in actual fact. This is a type of investment uh, that is safe, it's secure, and it's the, one of the only assets that I know that is an insurable. Um, our clients love natural fancy color diamond because there's no volatility. It's not mm-hmm. looking at the stock market every day or looking at any commodities that jump up and down. It's a steady, progressive increase in value. It has a proven track record. Over the last 40 years since they've been keeping records, they have never, ever dropped in price. This is in uh, times of inflation, depression, any types of problems that's happening in the world, whether it's been the you know the tech bubble, whether it's been the real estate problem, subprime, they've never, ever dropped in price. And in actual fact, in some of these real turbulent times, they've increased as much as 30 40% in one year. Colored diamonds have, because of this track record, they tend to double every four to five years in value. Now, when we say... They double every four to five years. This is not just regular colored diamonds. These are investment grades. These are diamonds that meet certain standards, certain criteria that we go out to try to buy. So whether you're buying a red diamond, a blue diamond, a pink diamond, these are the rarest of rarest diamonds. Uh, For In fact, like red diamonds, there's probably only 100 in the world. So they're going to increase in value, you know, sometimes doubling every year, rather than going up maybe 5 or 8 or 10%. When we say natural fancy color diamonds of investment grade double every four to five years, this is on the type of diamond you're buying. It's like real estate. If you're buying a 2-3 carat pink diamond, they're extremely rare. They're going to go increase in value maybe 35 40% a year. A fancy or an intense or a pink diamond, uh, you know, depending on the grade, will increase a cer- certain amount. Ultimately, when it comes to the increases in value, a lot of it has to do with the rarity, and the rarity is equal to its cost. Uh, the more rare the diamond, the obviously the more it will cost to procure that diamond. And in that respect, um, the more you can invest in a diamond, the larger the investment, the, the better your opportunity to ultimately have a diamond that, that doubles as Paul's discussing, every every uh, five years or so. It doesn't mean that every diamond does that. What we're talking about here is that colored diamonds in general, they are uh, they do have that proven track record. They are not volatile. They've never gone down in price. So you're always seeing increases in these diamonds. It's not a guarantee per se that you'll get that 100% gain in five years, but it does mean that it's a very safe investment that these diamonds continue to move up year over year. And I can say from personal experience, we've never seen a diamond come through Guildhall that didn't have a consistent increase. Jeremy, you mentioned that, uh, well, actually, Paul mentioned red diamonds. There's about 100 in the world. That, that's beyond rare. Why is there only 100 red diamonds? Where are they coming from? Well, that's a good question. I'm not sure where every single red diamond comes Mm -hmm. from. What we do know is that it is extremely, extremely rare that when it comes to trying to calculate just how many red diamonds are out there, that's an equally 
a difficult task. I know that the Vatican has a has a, a cross that they've put a, a whole bunch of red diamonds really? in. Yeah, they probably have half the red diamonds in the world. Um, no, actually, it, actually it, most of the red diamonds come from the Argyle mine in Western Australia. That's where they produce, you know, 90% of the world's purposely pinks, pinks, and reds, which is actually one-tenth of 1% of their total production. So they're extremely rare. Um, some diamonds are actually cut from pink... Uh, or, or purposely pink by cutting back on some of the diamonds, you can actually turn that diamond into a red diamond. But, Nico, you know a little bit more about what makes up a colored diamond. Well, so. pink diamonds and red diamonds, red diamonds, they get their color from the way the diamond has been formed deep beneath the Earth's surface billions of years ago. And it has to do with the composition, the way that the carbon atoms are arranged that brings the color. So there is some... some uh, folklore or mystique around red colors because some people believe it, the color comes from directional distress, which is the irregularities that are formed within the crystal lattice during, during the forming process. Some people believe that they don't know, and that what, that's what brings the mystique about them and the rarity that they just don't know how they're formed. So there is a lot of um, discussion about how they're formed, but that is how they get their color. Really, it's the they call it the plastic. It's kind of a deformation, really, in the crystal lattice. So with reds, you just have to have that intense concentration of heat and uh, temperature forming together and pressure, rather, forming together. So very, very rare. You can always get more information by going to guildhalldiamonds.com, and the number is one 274 9570 Again, one 274 9570 You know, like any investment, there are fundamentals for investing. Jeremy, can you speak to our audience a little about uh, the fundamentals and how this affects the price of colored diamonds? Yeah, Nicole was talking about one, not just in, in red diamonds, but in all colored diamonds. They are very rare, and that, that comes from obviously restricted supply. There's only so many colored diamonds out there. The The cliche is, of course, that for every 10,000 white, there's a, there's a colored diamond, and that doesn't necessarily make it a quote-unquote investment grade. It just means it happens to, to be a diamond with color. So finding a diamond is very difficult. They are very, very rare to come across. There There's no diamond mine out there that's mining specifically for colored diamonds. Even the Argyle mine, which produces 90% of the world's pinks, is that's one-tenth of one percent of their entire production. So that's not why they're in business. It's just a, a good side for them. Then you also have the demand. You know, this market really got kick-started in the 80s, but investors took note in the 70s. It really started to take off in the 80s. And now with the opening of markets like like Asia and the Middle East, you've got intense demand all over the world for colored diamonds. So you have a lot of people looking to try to own and procure something that's extremely, extremely rare. Imagine, you know, imagine as many people trying to get a Picasso, right? Mm -hmm. the, the, I'm sure his prices have gone up exponentially in the last 10 years. Well, for every 112 of those that go into auction, there's one blue diamond. So there's a mass amount of appeal a mass amount of demand. This is a huge fundamental. The supply side, of course, these diamonds were, as Nicole mentioned, were created billions and billions of years ago. They're not going to, the earth isn't creating any more diamonds. 
and there's a limited finite supply in the interim mining mining operations are shutting down uh, again the argyle mine is is slated to close within the next few years so there's a finite supply huge demand and this this is why year after year we see record breaking auctions in colored diamonds year after year we see the prices moving up this is why the price is not volatile because they are so rare they are in such high demand it just continues to increase in value as a result the number to call is one 274 9570 and the website as well is guildhalldiamonds.com. Nicole? Um, just wanted to add to Jeremy's um, thoughts on supply and demand that now there's so much more awareness for natural fancy colored diamonds than there ever were. We have a wonderful organization in our business called the Natural Colored Diamond Association, the NCDIA, and they promote the beauty of diamonds. We also see celebrities wearing beautiful diamonds on the red carpet, and there's a lot of news items, auction records that are continually to smash records like $46 million for a, a magnificent 100-carat diamond. So the world has taken notice, so more and pe- more people understand this investment, and they're turning to it as an alternative to regular traditional investments. As a woman, I can say that it's an easier investment. There's Paul was talking about risk. There's very low risk with it. It has a proven track record. So for a, a woman or for people that don't like a lot of risk, it's a perfect alternative to stock markets and volatile markets such. Jeremy, you guys had a uh, seminar coming up. I believe the date is Saturday, September 6th. You want to give me some details on that? Yeah, we do seminars on colored diamonds. People really appreciate it because A, they get an opportunity to see a few diamonds. They get an opportunity to meet Guild Hall, and they get an opportunity to learn in more detail what colored diamonds are all about. We like to tell some stories about some famous diamonds as well as, as how they progressed into such a, a wonderful investment today. So there's a, there's a, a lot to learn. We do investments on, on colored diamonds as, as well as uh, we do deal in precious metals, but we do particular invest, uh, seminars on colored diamonds because it's a great opportunity for people to actually see the colored diamonds. Uh, we always bring out a few. We show people how the investment came about, why it's so popular, why it's going to continue to move, why it's such a great opportunity. And of course, people get to meet and, and greet Guildhall. So there's a lot to, to learn in a short amount of time. If you're looking at the investment even slightly or, or looking maybe to, to buy some jewelry and want to get some, some knowledge on certain criteria you should be looking for when buying even just a, a regular diamond, this can be a very helpful seminar. And again, that date is Saturday, September 6th. Uh, Supreme luxury event venue that's 8311 weston road in woodbridge and you want to register 1-866-274-9570 or guildhalldiamonds.com slash seminar get in there early it's going to fill up seats are limited we'll take a short break here on the real money show the number to start investing anytime one eight seven seven eight silver and the real money we'll take a short break and coming up a little later bob hoy will be here to tell us about what's in future for silver and gold right here on the real money show and we are back with more of The Real Money Show, one eight seven seven eight silver and therealmoneyshow.com. We'll get back into this. We're talking about natural fancy colored diamonds. We took a break before the break. We were discussing why people love natural fancy colored diamonds and the fundamentals behind a huge inclination for investors to turn to natural fancy colored diamonds uh, for store of wealth. Paul, can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely, John. Um, I love natural fancy colored diamonds because it is a way to rest- actually keep your wealth and not have it confiscated. Um, Jeremy said in the, the first uh, segment how rare these diamonds were, that there's no new mines coming online, which is absolutely correct. Uh, 
Um, if you're looking to retire or if you're looking to put your kids through school, this is probably one of the best investments you're going to make and probably the best kept secret. They tend to double natural fancy color diamonds, especially the quality we have every four to five years. Now, if you're buying a diamond for $25,000, for example, you can look to get, you know, $100,000 in 10, 10 to 12 to 15 years, maybe even higher, up to 200000 if it's an argyle pink because the mine is closing down and it's going to become very, very hard to find an argyle pink. So, again, it's, an, it's something... Oh, the safe, it's secure, you can insure this product. There's not many items that you can insure against all types of things going wrong in the market, whether we talk about subprime, whether we talk about uh, the stock uh, bubbles or anything else that's going on that can hamper your wealth. If your kids, grandkids, you know, you, you want to leave them something, you know, when you get into your mid-50s and 60s, you can't gamble, you know, on your investments. You have to be into something that's worthwhile, that's got a proven track record. And as I said, over the last 40 years, natural fancy colored diamonds have never, ever dropped in price. And they tend to go up and up and up. If you look at white diamonds, for example, everybody knows about white diamonds. There's lots of white diamonds out there, but they don't go up in value. There's only a specific few white diamonds that do go up, like Elizabeth Taylor's white diamond, which was... You know, a huge, the size of a bagel. Um, you know, that those those are diamonds that go up, and they have because it was from Richard Burton. They have some type of worth to it. But the average person buys a white diamond. It's an engagement ring, or they get a ten-year anniversary present, or whatever. They really don't go up. It's just recognition of someone's love. Um, if you love that person, you should really look at investing in a natural fancy colored diamond. The number one eight six six two seven four ninety five seventy and online guildhalldiamonds.com. Want to get into what makes an investment grade diamond? We'll turn to our diamond grading expert, Nicole Snipman, GIA trained industry professional. Uh, what makes an investment? And first of all, what is GIA? What does that mean? Your, GIA your... is the Gemological Institute of America. Mm-hmm. So they're the foremost authority on diamond grading. So everyone in the industry uses GIA for the diamond grading reports. Investment grade, that's what we're talking about here. What makes it investment grade, other than being, you know, the size of a bagel from Richard Burton? Right. (laughs) Well, there's four value factors, and these were determined by the GIA in the 1940s and 1950s. They came up with what is called the four Cs, color, cut, clarity, and carat weight. When you're looking at natural fancy color diamonds, the very first thing you want to consider is color. So it's color, color, color. Much like in real estate when it's location, location, Mm -hmm. location, it's all about color. And it has to be the most saturated color. So you're looking at different hues. You're looking at yellows, pinks, blues, reds. But you also want to look at what is very rare, extremely rare, rare, and what is just rare. So a lot of people might, they've heard of brown diamonds, black diamonds, gray diamonds. Those are not rare. Therefore, they're not valuable. Mm -hmm. So you want to, the color is very important, the type of color. There's nine color grades ranging from very light, faint, faint, and then light, all the way through to vivid. We start looking at fancy. So we look at fancy, intense, and vivid for your color grades. So it's very, very important color, the body color. And the way to get the color is through the cut. So the cut brings out the color and the beauty. So if you have a very skilled master cutter, he will take a rough diamond, he'll polish a a facet, look through and determine what kind of color grade it's going to be based on 
the the rough. He's going to determine the clarity grade, and he's going to determine how this should be fashioned. So you could take a two-carat diamond, for instance, and it could have many inclusions, and it could be turned into a one-carat, vivid, internally flawless diamond. So it's really going to depend on what the master cutter decides is going to happen with the diamond. So he will take a carat's worth of material off that to increase the grade of the diamond. Exactly, and that's going to bring more value. So it's all about when you're looking at investment-grade diamonds, it's about the color, and then you want to look at the cut. So the cut refers to a variety of things. It refers to external factors on the diamond, so any nicks, marks, scrapes, those are your blemishes, and it refers to internal characteristics or flaws, and those are your your inclusions. So we want to look for a high-clarity grade, and we'll get into clarity in a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, but the cut is going to bring out what clarity grade you end up having. Does it depend the cut on the color of diamond as opposed to a pear or cushion cut? Does it matter? Well, there are certain cuts that will increase the the uh, saturation okay. of the color and bring out the color. So you're looking at your radiant cuts, your cushion cuts. These cuts are called fancy cuts. And what the fancy cut essentially means is anything other than a round brilliant is deemed a fancy cut. Oh. So it's your pears, your ovals, your your emerald cuts. So for color diamonds, we tend to look at radiance and cushion cuts because they maximize the color. But then in the industry, if you have um, premium cuts such as ovals and pears, they're beautiful. And if they can retain the color and hold the color and be evenly saturated, there's, they're very hard to find, especially if they're evenly distributed in color. So there's a premium on those cuts. So then you also want to look for your cut at symmetry. Symmetry, beauty is in the symmetry. So you have to have, if you have a pair, your your uh, sides have to be completely even on each side. It has to be beautiful. And then you're looking at the polish. So how is this diamond finished? Are there polish lines, grain lines? How is the girdle? That's the perimeter around the diamond. So you're looking at a variety of things for cut, how the, the color comes through, what what the symmetry is, the polish, how it's fashioned. And then you want to look at clarity. So I was just mentioning about your external factors and your internal factors, which are blemishes and mm-hmm. inclusions. And you want to have a high clarity grade. Now, for each color, it's going to depend what that clarity grade is. So, for instance, we were talking at the beginning of the show about pinks. Due to the way pinks are formed in nature because of their graining irregularities, you don't see internally flawless diamonds, but you do see a lot of SI, which are slightly included. We looked to VS as an example, very slightly included, because that's considered a very high clarity grade for that color. And then we want to look at carat weight. So for each color, there's a, a minimum carat weight that's going to bring value. And we can talk to you more about that. But for instance, I can tell you that for yellows, we, we start at one carat. That will bring you value for an investment-grade diamond. So just to, to uh, top up, you want to look at all of these value factors But you want to look at them together as well, because that's how, at the end of the day, you can have everything on paper, but you have to look at it and say, is that a beautiful diamond? Does it have fire? Does it have brilliance? Is it beautiful to look at? And most importantly, is the color exceptional? I also realize that I already need an expert to do this. I'm not just going to... Just what you mentioned with the four Cs, I would never tackle this on my own. You You need to come to Guildhall Diamonds and get an expert with you. Absolutely, because we've seen this time and time again. When people bring us diamonds, you can have... 
two diamonds, they're both the same carat weight. Mm -hmm. They both might be the same shape, but one might look clunky and not have the light return. And the other one might be exquisite because of the way it was cut. The diamond is sparkling. It has scintillation. The color is beautiful and it just sparkles. It's very magical. 1-866-274-9570 and guildhalldiamonds.com. Jeremy. I think it's interesting when you're looking at those four C's that typically when someone is going to buy a diamond, um, whether it's to mark an a, a milestone, an anniversary, or getting engaged, whatever whatever reason that you're out there to buy that uh, something special for someone, most of the time um, they're interested in two things. They're interested in the size and they're interested in the shape. And you mentioned cut, but it that those are the two factors that people are mainly interested in in terms of for fashion or whatnot. And when it's really the other factors and they're that second half of cut, which is not just the shape but how well it's shaped, that it's these other factors that are really helping uplift that diamond mm-hmm. into something that's ultimately very rare and ultimately considered investment grade. There is, there is also a fifth C, um, which a di- natural fancy color diamond is a currency. Uh, it's portable wealth, and it can be sold somewhere right. down the road in any currency, uh, whether it's U.S. dollars, whether it's yen, whether it's euros, sterling, Canadian dollars. It can be put into several different markets. Well, I just wanted to add that one to Jeremy's point, when people are looking for diamonds, say it's for an engagement, you have something in mind because you've seen all the marketing and you just yep. have something in mind. And those value factors might be very personal to you. For instance, you might be interested in clarity. You might be a perfectionist type, an A personality, and clarity is very important to you. Or size might matter. So it really, for white diamonds, it's very personal. But when you're looking at investment-grade diamonds, you have to consider the color first because the color and how rare that color is, that's what's going to make you money. And at the end of the day, this is all about making you money and passing on your wealth, preserving your wealth and passing it on. Nicole, I mentioned earlier you wrote uh, you're the author of the 10-Step Buyer's Guide. This is something you should have and get by calling, but uh, describe and tell us what it is. Well, I wrote it. It's not technical. It's very easy to follow, but it's basically the 10 steps that everybody should know from looking at you know color, clarity, all of that. But there's also little tips and tricks because there are people out there selling diamonds that you might not know what to do and for instance brown diamonds we hear about them all the time cognac champagne chocolate diamonds and you might think that's investment and it's not so this is really very simple but it acts as a checklist you know when you're shopping around and looking at different companies and looking at diamonds and i think it's quite helpful if you'd like to get it you can just call us for it or if you come out to the seminar we're happy to give you a copy there the seminar by the way is saturday september 6th supreme luxury event venue 8311 weston road in woodbridge uh space very limited 1-866-274-9570 or register online at guildhalldiamonds.com slash seminar we'll take a short break here on the real money show the question coming up is real estate investment in canada in a bubble we'll find out bob hoy of institutionaladvisors.com is coming up the number to start investing one eight seven seven eight silver and the real money online and back with more of the real money show one eight seven seven eight silver and the real money show.com joining us now bob hoy of institutionaladvisors.com he's a canadian veteran financial analyst trader market historian and advisor and author of the newsletter pivotal events his research expertise over several decades enable him to share his knowledge on canadian real estate and hard assets like gold and silver bob welcome to the show hi bob it's great to have you here it's uh, great to have a Canadian uh, veteran analyst and give that Canadian perspective on, on the market. So we're, we're really appreciative of you to join us today. It's good to be with you and your listeners. 
And um, speaking of listeners, I think uh, they're all ready to find out, is the Canadian real estate market overheated at this point? Yeah, I think it would be. Uh, you've had a terrific advance in overall prices for residential. And uh, it also, as everybody has noted, survived the collapse of uh, residential real estate prices in the United States. And uh, one would think that the markets north and south of the border would be somewhat similar. They usually are, but in looking back on it, uh, you could say that perhaps uh, the Asian bid, particularly as we see it in Vancouver, and it also has it's been exercised in Toronto, has been fabulous. And But also there was an Asian bid into the United States, but I think there... Uh, domestic uh, problem situation with so much leverage, and when it started to come down, it overwhelmed whatever uh, buying power that Asia would have or could have employed. So we've been, uh, let's call it kind of a protected market, but like anything else, uh, an outstanding run, uh, the longer it goes, the more vulnerable it, it becomes. And what would be the vulnerabilities? Uh, one is that the uh, U.S. market, which is still the senior economy and the senior currency, has been on, uh, coming out of the crash that ended in 2009, has been on a terrific financial boom uh, with uh, rather discouraging economic numbers and employment numbers and like that, but the big action has been in the stock market and in the lower grade bond market. So, and it still could be called a you know a, a regular cyclical cyclical bull, uh, economic recovery out of a crash. This has prompted some uh, rise in commodity prices but not a terrific rise. As a matter of fact, a lot of uh, speculators in commodities and gold and silver have been quite disappointed because they've looked at the reckless ambition of the central bankers, particularly the Federal Reserve System, and figure that that has to go into commodities, but it hasn't. Uh, it's gone into, well, for example, junk bonds, the, the total return including price and and interest payments from the end of the crash in 2009 has been about 150%. The return from stocks has been uh, about 90%. And I just calculated a little earlier today the return on commodities like the CRB has been uh, about 40, uh, 40%. So the usual uh, interest or the usual link from central bank ambition to uh, price rallies has been confusing. And the way we look at it is that the the public chooses what it's going to speculate in. And uh, all the, the uh, Federal Reserve has is the ability to ease credit, uh, and it, it never tightens credit. But at any rate, it's gone into uh, stocks and bonds. Now, Technically, the degree of speculation can be measured. And uh, um, about a couple of months ago, on the stock market, 
if you look at sentiment and the momentum figures, they're as high as they got in 2007 and almost as wild as, as in 2000, which were magnificent bubbles and uh, were followed by equally magnificent declines. So then how does this relate to real estate in Canada? So I'm going to go back on my memory and, and some rough research here. But you did have a huge bubble in commodities and, and accompanied by and serious consumer price inflation. The rate of inflation got up to something like about 15%. That was wage inflation as well. And then the, the real focus was on silver and gold, which blew out and completed its move in January of 1980. Now, at that time, house prices in the United States and Canada were very strong. Uh, this was considered a sure thing. In, from the highs of around 1980, if you take British properties on the North Shore here in Vancouver, which is high-end stuff, a lot of business people there, expense account people, it's not old Vancouver, well, prices there fell to one-third of their high. That's not one-third of, but to one-third of their high. This was also confirmed uh, by uh, a history of one particular house in Toronto in the Forest Hills area, which is high-end, and it was reported occasionally by in the in the Financial Post there was some uh, wheeler dealer promoter guy in Toronto got himself into trouble, uh, felony, the whole thing, and the trust company seized his house, and it was carried on the books at I recall something like a million and a half dollars, and then about every six or nine months the Financial Post would write this up, and by the time the paperwork was done, and the trust company offloaded the house, the price was at one-third of when the game started in 1980. So this was uh, would reflect residential real estate prices in many regions in Canada. It just depends on how high you know they got on the on the boom. But here in Vancouver in Caresdale, uh, comfortable Midland type homes, uh, well they fell in half. The other one is on on uh, another one that come, comes to mind is that the um, there was a property downtown Vancouver uh, where the now sh lovely Shangri La Hotel uh, sits, and that was undeveloped downtown property, prime area. And then when it was the deal was finally done a number of years ago to get it in the hands of the current developer. Uh, the newspaper article noted that it was uh, valued at about one-third of the price it had been in a previous boom. So it's amazing how that number seems to have appeared in a number of different, in both uh, residential and in one example of a, of a commercial property. So in the past, real estate has dropped by two-thirds. What about the present? Well, let's take a look at some of the events here. The bubble, uh, financial mania and bubble that concluded in 2007 
was what we described at the time as a classic bubble, uh, like 1929 or so many ones earlier in the past, where you have a, a new issue, a new financial era where uh, things that are going on are considered easy and will go on forever, but in effect are quite dangerous. And then with these classic financial bubbles, you've also had a, a, a reasonably good market for residential property and, uh, and, and a reasonably good market for most commodities. Uh, that was not the case in 2007, 2000, or sorry, the 2000 bubble. That was just all tech stocks, and there was hardly any action in real estate or, or commodities. But even going back to 1929, the, the feature of that mania on the real estate side was the madness of the speculation that was going on in property in Florida. And then when it crashed, it impaired uh, the credit markets quite something. And then finally, when the stock market crashed, that, that was uh, made sure that you ended up with a, in a long post-bubble contraction. And uh, this is also worth noting that in the past examples, the first great financial mania blew out in 1720. It was the South Sea bubble. And most of those characteristics were replicated on everyone since, and uh, 2007 was number six. But the main thing is that each was followed by around 20 or 25 years of what would call a post-bubble contraction, where people looked at all of the debt taken on in the mania and say, that's awful, i got to get out of it. And the whole unwinding process can take a long time. And also the regular three- to four-year or five-year business cycle continues. Uh, it's just that the, uh, the, the, the expansionary parts become weak and the recession's a little more severe. There's a lot going on here because obviously there's interventions from central banks keeping interest right. rates low. That's fueling it. Then you've got, you're saying what's, what's levying it in the interim is foreign investment, as it were, Asian demand for real estate in Vancouver. In Toronto, when we look at our sources in real estate, we're getting, um, you know, Russian um, uh, investment, uh, Asian investment, Indian investment. So we're seeing a lot of that be helping fuel it. The question is, is of course, these can't last forever. And if it were, if, if real estate were to come off, let's say 20%, not two thirds, as, as we were talking in these uh, uh, speculative bubble bursts, but if it were to come off, say 20%, what do you think the fallout of that would be? Well, anybody who's highly leveraged uh, and new, you know, late buyers who are leveraged and with a huge mortgage on it are going to suffer. But in this age of volatility, and uh, you know the Asian bid is not going to be there all the time because going back to 1989 when uh, the big bid was from uh, Japan, and they were bidding up asset prices all around the world, Pebble Beach and all that sort of stuff, and then they collapsed. They suffered the financial hardship. So. So you can say, as a rule of thumb, the bigger the bubble and the mania, the more severe the con subsequent contraction is. So here what we want to do, if we're looking at timing on this, the uh, 
the stock market and the and the U.S. Uh, low-grade bond market would be a good guide. And we're going into a period when credit markets can uh, get worked over very severely. That's uh, September and October, and we have had great excitement and wonderful confidence in the credit markets up until recently. So there's a probability that this five-year bull market for stocks and low-grade bonds and the five-year recovery, as weak as it's been, would likely uh, begin to contract, uh, and we might see a sign of this uh, somewhere in September, and in which case uh, many of the listeners who may be a little overextended in real estate would say, let's sort of clean up the house a little here and protect ourselves, because the part about inflation in hard assets the opinion now, and this is seen in gold bugs and silver bugs and uh, those who are permabulls on commodities, is that they see all of the recklessness done by the Fed, and it has been reckless, as somewhere in a few years from now, this will bubble up out into, into base metal, say, for example, or into gold and silver. But the view that history provides is that, at the moment, the recklessness of central banks is founded upon the bid in in low-grade bond markets and in the stock market. And if that bid goes away, so if you get a, a, a normal cyclical bear market to the bull market in stocks and bonds, uh, that then, as, you know, the, the players are going to get hurt the credit markets will become wary, and uh, you're not going to see, you know, a sudden switch over. But what you can get is, is that the key to figuring out gold, and here's where it becomes just plain methodical, is that in every post-bubble contraction, there have been five previous ones, the real price of gold goes up, and then by the real price, I mean you can deflate it by the CPI or by a producer price index or just straight relative to commodities. So the pattern has been that gold has set an important low uh, as a boom concludes, and the uh, price of gold has come down a long way since 2011 on this boom, and it's trying to base in here... We'll take a short break. The numbers start investing in the meantime. one silver and online at therealmoneyshow.com. This is The Real Money Show. The numbers start investing. one silver and therealmoneyshow.com. We're back with Bob Hoy of institutionaladvisors.com. You mentioned before the break that gold is basing here. What about going forward? Gold's real price did decline with this latest boom, <clears throat> excuse me, and is recovering as the boom uh, seems to be rolling over. So then let's just spend a little time on, on the real price of gold because as it goes up, and you that represents uh, a, a, a price for mining gold that is improving relative to the cost of mining gold. And one of the major costs, of course, is energy. So you've had crude oil heading down recently from 107 down to 96 and that reflects energy costs, and it takes a lot of energy to operate a mine. So 
And this has been going on for 300 years, whereby in each post-bubble contraction, the real price of gold has done well. Uh, eventually, profitability returns to the gold mining industry, and then eventually it becomes highly speculative. So what we look at here now is that the good times in stocks and bonds and the <laughs> moderately or ironical uh, weak recovery in the economy is a cyclical event that is peaking and will decline. And at the same time, the uh, decline in gold's nominal price, I mean the price in dollars, and the decline in the real price relative to commodities, that's been really serious since 2011 and is the cyclical opposite to what's going on in orthodox investments. So this is setting up the big opportunity in the, in the gold market. Now, in reviewing all of this history years ago, uh, there were other industrial or concepts or innovation that came along where you might have a company that would do well or a, a, a sector that would do well. But the one that was methodical was the, re the recovery in the real price of gold and the recovery in the profitability of the industry, and then eventually it becomes the darling amongst investors. So our advice to uh, many people, plus institutions, would be to have some gold definitely now and watch for the opportunity to uh, buy some gold shares. So it, let me see if, I, if I'm hearing you correctly. We have a bubble bursting in 08, which was, <clears throat> excuse me, financial uh, leverage. You've had a really bad recovery for the last five years, which looks like it's about to roll over, um, induced, of course, as much as possible from, from uh, central bank intervention. And you, you see these bubbles, as we were talking about earlier with real estate as an example. But in your opinion, it's starting to, it looks like it could roll over any day. You could see that with the mania. People just believe that the stock market could just keep going up forever. Yeah. Central banks can keep going on doing whatever they're doing forever. The fact is they can't. History shows us that it's about to happen. And when you see the cycle reversing, gold being at a low here, this would be a great entry point. For sure. I would... We're not shy about saying this one, that fund managers and individuals should be owning gold itself right now. And as I noted, at some time there would be a great buy for the gold stocks. And I would be wary of being highly leveraged in the real estate market. You know, you, you have your home, and that shouldn't be part of the equation of whether you're making money or losing money. But if one is overhomed... Is that have I coined a phrase on that one? Uh, it would be time to uh, protect yourself, reduce the exposure, and uh, this should be. If one watches the stock market and also lower grade bond markets, this should begin to show up by late in September. On it's also worth noting that wherever you've got financial history, which is pretty good stuff back to the 1360s that if, if there is a problem in the financial markets, it will be discovered in the fall of the year. It can be, it can, you can find them at other times of the year, but the biggest uh, liquidity problems have all been discovered in the fall of the year. 
I, I noticed that when you hear, uh, you know, Fed chairmen and women talking, they can really talk up a market. But if something goes wrong in the market, it's very difficult to then all of a sudden be talkative and try to get the market up. I think that's why uh, investors are keenly awaiting what Mario Draghi has to say. But again, they're going to intervene, right? They're going to create more money, lower interest yeah. rates as they can and keep trying to hold on to the position that they currently have. Why, why do you think it is that at least on the ground level, everyday people, we're, we're experiencing inflation, um, whether it be insurance, gas prices, food prices, uh, you know, wherever it is. And yet, it, you know, I, w- I would think a lot of gold investors would be frustrated by the fact that it hasn't protected against inflation. Now, I, I say that, of course, knowing if you'd held it for the long term, it, it obviously would. So I hope I'm not answering my own question there. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you hit the right thing. Um, the... Um typically the real price of gold has declined with a bubble. And we've had a bubble in stocks and bonds, and the price of gold has gone down, which is the way it works. So though over a lengthy period of time, yes, holding gold will protect you from inflation and deflation, but like anything else, it has its seasons and times and cyclical stuff. So uh, uh, our work on gold in 2011 was, we take, in a normal rally for gold and silver, silver will outperform gold. So what you do is you take the silver-gold ratio, and then you run a momentum thing on it, which is called the RSI. So we were watching our historical work from ages ago noted that in the bubble for gold and silver that concluded in January of 1980, that the silver-gold ratio began to change two weeks before, or something like that, maybe three weeks before the actual top. So then after that, making that discovery, we looked at a, a number of other bull markets, and indeed that's the case. So what we do is we take the silver-gold ratio and then the momentum on that, the RSI, and in, I think it was April 2011, in there, that RSI got up to 92, and so we checked back and ran it back, and the only other time it got up to 92 was in the very fateful January of 1980. And we all know what a horror show that bear market was for silver and gold. So then when it hit that 92 in 2011, we advised that it it was a mark of dangerous speculation in the sector. And we also noted that it wouldn't it would be bad but not as bad as what followed nineteen eighty. This generally worked out, but then there was another attempt to really ram gold and silver to the moon and that was in September of uh, twenty twelve. And on that one the RSI got up to I think it was eighty two but it was enough to say that, again, this is a measure of, of intense speculation, and it was also dangerous, and that uh, uh, further price erosion would follow for both metals. So uh, all we can do is say that on, on the precious metal sector is that uh, it's bottoming. And because you take a look back, that was 
a little more than a decade-long bull market for precious metals and precious metal stocks. And the culmination of it, some of the senior gold miners were doing very reckless things like um, starting up mines in, in, in difficult geological terrain or geographic terrain in places, in countries that were politically risky. And, and then there's all been a whole lot of write-offs on that. So one would not expect... Uh, the excesses of a decade-long bull market in precious metals to be uh, to be corrected in a year. Uh, this is now 2011. To, you know, we're three years out, and then now you got to face probably um, a severe liquidity crisis in the fall. So gold would be expected to act well right through a liquidity crisis because the careful and safe and conservative money. In, in viewing a potential crisis, will go to the most liquid items, and that would be treasury bills in, in U.S. dollars, and also gold provides them the unique liquidity. And remember that these people are not moving into these assets in order to make money. It's 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 where can you park it, where it's going to be safe and you can get it back. So the the uh, the investment demand for gold uh, is there, and uh, it will continue. And uh, I would urge your listeners that not to pay too much attention to the day-to-day swings in in the U- in the price of gold in either Canadian or U.S. dollars, but to you can take it if you've got a screen and take the uh, just a quick uh, calculation on it is just to take the dollar price of gold and divide it by, say, the CRB index. And uh, so long as gold is outperforming the CRB, then the pattern of uh, of uh, the next contraction is working. So you can even use it as an indicator. The other one w- that uh, many gold and silver bugs seem to overlook is that the ratio between gold and silver itself, uh, we mentioned the silver-gold ratio, but uh, more typically one comments on the gold-silver ratio, and it has a tendency to rise uh, going into uh, financial distress. So if uh, somewhere later in September you get a day where silver is down a whole bunch and gold is not, that's an indicator of financial trouble pending, and um, I've for decades wondered how how do the silver and gold traders know this? But it sort of acts like a credit spread, and when it starts to go up, it'll be working with credit spreads as they start to widen. So I think to kind of review things on on our on our conversation here is that the rise, the big action has been in lower-grade bonds, and they look like they're in an ending pattern now. The stock market rise has been very, very good, and it looks like in an ending pattern. And we just updated our study on the European stock market, and uh, their stock's 50 index. It set a high in June with uh, technical alarms going off 
it's had a longer decline and it had a, a greater decline as far as taking out key moving averages. So now, uh, unlike anything else, it has to have a bounce to kind of test that high. But uh, for our listeners, we would be watching the real price of gold, the lower grade bond market, and uh, the European stock market. This would give a, a lead on when uh, the next liquidity crisis would be along. And with that, we'd expect uh, the real price of gold to continue up, and you'd even get a good rally from time to time in the dollar price of it. And, uh, Bob, we, we just have a few seconds left here. I'm, I'm curious where you ultimately see a price of gold and silver going, um, and uh, and how would people get in touch with you? Well, we can get in touch with me. It's institutionaladvisors.com, or now with the magic of the Internet, if you just Google my name, B-O-B-H-O-Y-E, it'll come up and get you into our system. We welcome uh, interested people and subscribers, and we put on a free trial. And if you like it, you can get on. If you don't, that's fine with us. And uh, But uh, what was the other part of the question? Uh, where, where you ultimately see the price of, of gold and silver headed. Okay. Now, Gold will out uh, in a post bubble contraction. Gold will outperform silver by a long shot. So we would not be speculating in silver stocks now, and we wouldn't be accumulating gold stocks now either. But the end result, uh, once say you get past uh, uh, November, when if there is going to be a problem, it would likely be cleared by then. Then you could look at gold and silver stocks. And then a couple of years after that, you could get into a highly speculative market for the sector. So first of all, gold, and then at some time, gold stocks one should be investing in. Bob Hoy, I want to thank you for being with us today. Thanks a lot, and it's good to be with you. I look forward to hearing from you soon. And want to thank Bob Hoy of institutionaladvisors.com. You want to uh, start investing right now would be a good time. one silver and the realmoneyshow.com.